This is episode 210 of IDRA Class Notes. It's really important when we talk to schools about how to get started, it's really important that they spend some time thinking about giving young people that capacity and giving their staff that capacity to understand emotions and how things that happen impact them personally and being able to articulate what that means to them and how harms and how their goals and how all of these things can work together in their community and how it has an impact. You want to tailor the response to whatever is going on in that environment. Hello, this is Dr. Paula Johnson, Equity Director here at IDRA for our Regional Equity Assistance Center, and I'm joined today by Terrence Wilson. Today, we're going to be talking about restorative justice implementation and kind of a how-to get started and some key components, and let's just jump into it. We're doing some work with some school districts here in San Antonio around implementing restorative justice. There's about 21 campuses, and I'm hoping that this podcast can be helpful for them in their first year of implementation. But what would you, if you were to define restorative justice in school settings, how would you explain that to someone? What is RJ? So to me, restorative justice and restorative justice practices is really a mechanism for school communities to come together. And really it's focused on building community Uh, and really making sure that all of the students, the staff, folks from the bus driver to the parent or caregiver to the teacher all have a shared language around community and what the expectations are for that community. And it, it gives them the tools that they need to repair their community if something happens. But it's not something that's primarily focused on discipline. It's not something that's primarily focused even when when something negative happens. It really is mostly focused on building community. And most of restorative justice practice um, has to do with proactive steps that can be taken by school communities to build community. And, And it's less focused on those reactive steps that are taken once a harm has been felt by that community. And it's something that has got a long history uh, with indigenous peoples. It's got a long history with folks that have uh, a value and community in their culture. So this is not a new practice, but it is something that we are able to use in the schools to make sure that, you know, students and, and staff and all the folks in the school community are experiencing something that is uplifting and really affirming and really allows students to learn the best way that they can. Thank you for that. I think that's one of the best explanations of RJ that I've heard like ever, especially the connection to indigenous communities, which I know that in every training that we've done, you know, we we honor that in the space that we're in. And it's very moving to keep in mind that this is not something that we have just invented today in the last, you know, 10 years. And this goes back way, way back. So you you said a couple things, focusing on school relationship building relationships in a school community, that involves everybody. Like you said, you know, from the bus driver, to the school counselor, the nurse, the cafeteria, the nutrition workers, everyone is part of the school community. And so everyone is involved in restorative practices. If this is an, you know, full implementation from a student perspective, as well as an adult perspective, how 
do schools begin building that relationship? What are some of the tools that they might be able to use when implementing restorative justice? I've heard a lot about circles. Talk to me about circles as a tool. So really there's there's a range of restorative practices that are available to schools and they're just that, they are practices, right? So they are not prescribed, but there are a lot of options that schools have in order to build this kind of community that I was speaking of before. And we often talk about uh, restorative practices in terms of a continuum. Uh, and that continuum goes from practices that are less formal to practices that are more formal. So on the less formal end of the spectrum, really are things like being able to have an understanding of emotions. And so we have things that are called affective statements and affective questions, which are really designed to help students, um, staff, other folks in that school environment understand their emotions and understand how when something happens to them, they have the vocabulary to really articulate how what has happened has impacted them. A lot of the purpose of restorative practices is to do just that, to restore. And so in order to restore, you have to have the, the vocabulary to talk about what has happened, how that the lack of community has impacted you. And so a lot of the less formal restorative practices are around some of those activities that will help young people and help staff and administrators develop that capacity to talk about those emotions. And then on the further, more formal end of that sort of practice continuum are things like circles uh, and even formal conferences, right? And so these are more formal in terms of having particular ways that they are done, having particular kind of uh, rules that govern their operation. Uh, and these are really more reactive. In some instances, especially conferences are usually what's used when there's been some kind of harm that has been created. But circles, are kind of somewhere in the middle, right? So you asked about circles and what they are. Um, and so they, they kind of do both. They, they give you the opportunity to build community through talking about emotions, through talking about even course content, right? Building that community and shared trust amongst a classroom or in a school environment. But it also gives you an opportunity to be reactive, right? So if something happens in the community, oftentimes you will hear about a healing circle um, or a restorative circle that folks can use um, in order to address something that's happened uh, to the students. And so there's a, a wide range and really it's important not to start at the end in, in terms of conferences and circles. It's really important when we talk to schools about how to get started, it's really important that they spend some time thinking about giving young people that capacity and giving their staff that capacity to understand emotions and how things that happen impact them personally and being able to articulate what that means to them and how harms and how their goals and how all of these things can work together in their community and how it has an impact. So I think that you know, in order to get started, you would focus probably on the informal, but also at the same time, understanding that you want to tailor the response to whatever is going on in that environment. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Thank you. That where to begin and what to look forward to. The whole idea of like a whole school implementation of restorative justice practices, you have to step into that work, understanding that this is transformative work over a period of time. This is not something that happens in, you know, even one year. I was thinking about the National Education Association's implementation guide that really outlines very detailed step-by-step of, of what each year's benchmarks and look for should be and how to kind of assess, you know, where you are as a campus, at where you are as a district and the community in general 
around the implementation process. And something else that you mentioned that I thought was really key is that it's not just about response. It's not always reactive, that those circles can be used, as you said, for content. There's actually a circle and scripting for collaborative decision-making in a variety of settings. I like to see the as an opener to um, particular meetings, having a shorter circle around just building relationship, getting to know the people that you're with. And those questions there are, I mean, Google is our friend, right? So you can even find different ways for openers and, and circles. And one thing that we, we say a lot, or we've heard a lot too, is there's beauty in passing. A lot of people are intimidated by circles, by the circles themselves, restorative circles, and not wanting to share in that space. And that that's part of the circle process in the relationship building process is that it's not something being done to us, but with us as the whole paradigm shift of what restorative practices look like. And so when you start building out these circles, the more people experience them, I think the more they're willing to engage them, but that it's understood from the beginning that you are not being forced to participate in the circles. But over time, I think more people come to it. So thank you for that. It's a really good point that you made that oftentimes people think that when you're starting restorative practices that you start with the students and you start in the classroom. Uh, but oftentimes one of the things that we that we want to stress is that it's really starts with the adults that are around and you can start in your staff meetings. And one of the things that you do in order to build that shared community, build that safe space is often you bring things into the circle right? Sometimes it's items, sometimes it's stories, sometimes it's pictures to show that that you have value in that space and that this is a safe space that you want to create. And you can work from that. And really the, the whole power, the power of restorative practices in and of itself is that oftentimes when something happens, folks that, that have created a harm are much more interested in repairing that harm because of how much they believe in the sanctity of that space that you created with that circle. And so we we often talk about, you know, circles in the context of students, but really it can start with the adults in the building. And it takes a lot of practice to do, but it can be very powerful in the idea that this is a sacred space that we all maintain together. I'm really glad you mentioned that for two, two reasons. One, when participants in trainings ask me why circles, like why does it have to be a circle? We talk about the history of circles and the um, the symbols of circles and what it means to be in that group, in that community. And you can't get the same effect from sitting in straight rows in a classroom or by sitting in, you know, like some people think, well, isn't it like Socratic method? And you're like, mm, not exactly. This is not that kind of conversation because you're not jumping in when you think about it. You're There's a system to the circles. So that's one thing that I think circles are very important. The other part that you mentioned about the adults, beginning with the adults in the room, our training, because and I should mention the, the EAC, does provide restorative practices, professional development. It's a series of professional developments that takes you through the process and implementation and helps develop team building and things like that. But our training also incorporates culturally responsive and sustaining educational practices, which also includes talking about identity and centering the adults in that work and really coming to some understandings around stereotypes and microaggressions and 
biases that we carry with us because all of those things are going to impact how effective our implementation of restorative practices will be with students and throughout the school body. So it's really important to keep that in mind that a lot of educators have a false sense of understanding of what RJ really is and that by implementing it, they will somehow dispel all of the discipline concerns that they have for their campus. And because they're trying to fix kids versus creating an environment where students want to be engaged. When people say students are misbehaving or behaving badly, there are definitely some behaviors that I don't ever want to see anywhere. But the majority of student offenses, quote unquote, are inappropriate behavior in the moment. Like we should not run down the hallway because that's a safety issue. We should be careful on the playground so that we don't cause harm. But a lot of times it's very subjective, subjective responses to student behaviors that then end up in these suspensions or, or ISS or sometimes you know exclusionary practices versus taking in the moment, like using the restorative questions about what happened, you know, really getting into what is happening in the moment. What were you thinking about when it happened? Who might you have harmed? These are those restorative questions. How could you restore the person who was harmed by this? And even in that question of who was harmed, it helps students kind of focus. It might not just be one person. Like me and you may have, I'm just going to say, may have beef. You and I might get into it in school. But if you and I then take that to a physical level in the middle of a classroom, we have now harmed, even if not physically, other people in that room. We may have caused a harm or trauma to someone else in that room or the teacher or if we're in the hallway or if we're on the bus or even potential harm. And so I think it's important for students to just centering that and having them kind of stop in that moment and think about who else could have been affected by this? Because they're only seeing themselves in this other person, especially if they're seeing red, you know, in, in that moment. It's who else might you have affected by this particular moment? And then how can you make it right? How can you restore them? How can you build that trust back with your classmates or with your teacher? That's really what restorative is about, is being able to heal relationship so that you can move forward. Because if if two students get into it in a classroom, you can't change everyone's schedule just because they got into an argument. You know, that happens on a daily basis. But in a restorative environment, they are able to speak to each other in such a way that can help resolve the issues. And I know I've, I've said a whole lot right there, but I just think it's important for us to keep that in mind that the process of restorative practices has so many parts that are so integral to exceptional implementation. Exactly. And and I think it's a really important point that you made around understanding the desire to have disciplinary incidences go down and having, you know, fewer fights and fewer verbal altercations. And so we understand that schools get into this work with that in mind. And we think that restorative practices has the capability to lead to that outcome. And because if you think about the alternative, right, when you have an exclusionary discipline scenario, you know, in the instance that you and I have beef, Paula, you know, I may get suspended, then I come back into that environment in, you know, a week or however long I'm suspended, and that underlying tension is still there. So really, restorative practices has the ability to help us identify 
what are some of the underlying issues, and then work together on a plan collaboratively. So that's another thing that's important around how the accountability is structured. There's often more accountability on folks who create harm, right, um, than in your typical exclusionary discipline scenario. It's really something where folks who have been harmed and the person who created the harm or the group of folks who created that harm are able to come to an agreement about what should happen next to restore the community. And so oftentimes you get to the root of some of these issues in order to to be able to move forward in a way that's productive, in a way that you just don't necessarily get to if you're relying heavily on exclusionary discipline practices. I totally agree. Something I wanted to branch off of what you said is, one, implementation takes time. This is something that, you know, you're looking at years of, iterative implementation of, you know, looking at where you've been, you want to affect climate, you want to affect campus culture. So something that your statement made me think of is a lot of teachers' initial response to leadership that says, you know, we're really thinking about implementing restorative practices so that we can build this community. A lot of their first response is, oh, so we're just not going to discipline kids anymore. Like they don't hear We're trying to build relationship. We want to be proactive in building the sense of community so that people can work together, even through tensions and have a way, a really effective way of speaking through those things, having those dialogues. But what a lot of teachers hear because of the challenges of student behavior, they hear, oh, so no one's going to get in trouble. That's sometimes all they hear. How would you respond to that? And this is like kind of our final thought. What do you think? I think it's, you know, important that we recognize that young people are just like adults. And typically, you know, when we go into our jobs and we go into certain environments, right, we bring all the experiences that we've had that day, that week. We bring everything that's going on in our family into our environment. And so in our workplaces, we try to create spaces where, you know, if I need to take a a PTO day, if I need to have a self-care day, that we can do that. And for our young people, they don't have that opportunity. And so really what restorative practices does, it really gets you into the mood and gets you into the, the habit of having conversations to understand what's going on with your students. And it gives them the capacity to tell you, I'm having a hard day. I'm very frustrated today because of this happening in my life. You know, I can't take a PTO day, but I may have a short temper today. And for you to use that information constructively. So you may be able to prevent a fight that may happen or, you know, a a student having an altercation with another because you're in the, the habit of asking these questions and asking about the well-being of your students. And it can happen in every class. You know, the, the folks that do restorative practice very well do not just do this in a conference or in a circle at the end of the day or when something happens. They're doing restorative practices at all times. Everyone is always asking, you know, how are you feeling? You know, what's going on in your life? And that really builds trust and build community. If you think about, you know, the relationships that we have that we value as adults, a lot of it is based on people that are concerned about how we're doing and how we're feeling and how those things are impacting our performance. And so I think in the long run, if you're really interested in having students with better outcomes, behaving better, part of it is understanding what their needs are and having the right resources there to be able to address those needs before it turns into a behavioral issue, right? Because oftentimes these things are expected. If I'm, you know, struggling with something in my life, the way that I respond is probably predictable uh, and it's probably developmentally appropriate. 
And so we're empowering adults in the room and, and even other students to have the vocabulary and the capacity to identify what students are going through, giving them the spaces to be able to talk through those things and building the community to know that those kinds of perspectives are valid, they're worthwhile, and they're going to make sure that, you know, your school environment is going to be more conducive to learning. You're going to have less problems because students feel like they're taken care of and things that are done with them. You know, one of the most important pieces about restorative practices is, is as you mentioned before, you know, folks tend to behave better when they feel like folks in authority are doing things with them, not to them. And so this is one of the best ways that we have to do things with students, to experience education with them so that they feel empowered, so that they feel supported. And you're going to end up, you know, and we've seen it all across the country in places that have implemented restorative practices. When you do that right, then you're going to see fewer discipline referrals. You're going to see, you know, more people getting along and interacting in a way that you think is positive. The the proof is there. uh, And really, it's one of the best ways we have to improve that school community, that school climate that we're looking for. Thank you so much. I love that you mentioned you know, developmentally appropriate responses on students' parts. They have not, you know, their brains have not solidified and some adults behave badly under certain situations, you know, certain stresses and and levels of anxiety and just life happening, especially in this last year. So it's really important for us to think about how adults still need support in when they're having a bad day, you know, and sometimes feeling like you can't have a bad day, but students really get the short end of the stick because we expect them to behave like adults and fail to remember that some adults don't behave very well. So it's really a a great idea to keep at the forefront of our mind that you mentioned caring, a culture of care. If we establish a culture of care where students feel welcomed and valued and seen and supported, they are going to do everything they can to be in that environment, to stay in that environment and not get put out. So some of those off-task behaviors will automatically you know, start to dissolve. It does not mean, and so I just want to make sure we're clear, it doesn't mean there's never going to be a day when a student misbehaves or that uh, a tier two or three, you know, a high level offense may occur. It's going to happen. But I just want to say we need to stop policing children. If this is about creating an environment where students can be valued and seen and voice their concerns when they have a problem through very strategic practices. So we can do this all day long. So we're going to cut it short. But I will say again, the EAC does provide training and support for restorative practices. I would welcome you to visit our website at www.idraeac.org the idraeacsouth.org, or reach out to us, paula.johnson at idra.org. Thank you, Terrence, for spending the afternoon with me, and I look forward to future conversations. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.